Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services, here today to bring you a big announcement. Liberty Language Services is excited to announce the launch of its sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The Academy of Interpretation is offering Brandy Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language services company that recently celebrated 10 years of providing language access services, and they're currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, check out the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and I'm so very grateful that you've joined me today. You know, this week is technically the anniversary week of the podcast. Yep, that's right. We're two years strong this week. So technically the actual date is February 20th. But since it is the week that I launched the episode, I mean, it's this weekend. So happy anniversary, guys. And thank you so much for continuing to support not just the podcast, not just the show and the content that I put out with lots of love and admiration for the guests that are here, but also for supporting the guests because they have to be willing to come on this platform and be pretty open about their stories and then being willing to make them public. So you support that as well. And I'm very grateful for that. So again, happy anniversary or rather happy podcast anniversary. I'm pretty sure I made up that word. All right, on with the show. Today's guest specializes in the field of medical and education. Marisa Rueda Will started her career as a medical interpreter in 2006 after graduating magna cum laude from Luther College with a degree in Spanish. She has been a full-time healthcare interpreter at a major medical institution for the last 15 years. She became nationally certified through CCHI in 2012 and became a licensed interpreter trainer through cross-cultural communications in 2017. Marisa provides 40-hour training for in-house staff and converted in-person trainings to online formats during the pandemic. In 2021, she started her own company called Tika Interpreter Training and Translations. So, without further ado, here's Marisa 
Rueda Will. Marisa, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, Mireya, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I am thrilled. I was literally dancing around my living room with excitement. So I'm doing fabulous. Thank you so much. Wonderful. I'm just as excited for today's conversation with you and just getting to know you, the healthcare interpreter, a little bit more and about your experiences. So uh, I'd like to begin by asking you, for the longest time, you thought that your last name was pronounced a certain way, and then somebody busted your bubble. Tell us about that story. That is a great story, Mireya, and that is very close to what actually happened. I grew up thinking my last name was pronounced Ruda. It is spelled R-U-E-D-A. And my father and mother are prominent figures in the community. And my dad was a sports editor for the local paper for 40 years. And my mom works at a pizza restaurant, which is really well known and delicious. If you ever go to Mankato, Minnesota, stop by Polly Eyes. And everyone knew us and would call us Ruda by our last name. And then I got to Spanish class in ninth grade. And I remember my Spanish teacher, Senora Mendez, said, Marisa Sarita Rueda, that is a very Latino last name. Tell me about your heritage. And I said, Rueda, you know, I've been pronouncing it Ruda all of these years. And she brought me a textbook and opened it up. And there was this child sitting in a wheelchair And the vocabulary term next to it was silla de ruedas. And I learned not only that my last name was pronounced rueda, but also that it was a word in Spanish, which meant wheel. So the picture she showed me was of a person in a a wheelchair. And it was one of those uh, defining moments of my life that really uh, flipped a switch in my brain and made me curious about my heritage. You know, where did my name come from? I I wanted to learn more. I wasn't just going to stop there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can only imagine like it. uh, I had a guest, uh, a Wandro, maybe around a year or so ago uh, that spoke about the fact that a whole new world opened up. And in the moment that he realized he could read Right. And so I feel like this was that defining moment for you. Like you said, like a whole new world opened up, realizing that there was a different pronunciation and and even a direct translation to your name and what it meant. Talk to us a little bit about growing up. What was life like growing up in Minnesota? And what what is one of your favorite or fond memories uh, growing up? Well, it's unique for a person in Minnesota to be bilingual. I'll start there because there are a lot of Scandinavian uh, individuals in this area. So uh, it wasn't uh, surprising that uh, I would identify more with my, you know, U.S. American culture, because that was the culture that I was raised in. It was a very much um, football culture. You know, we are a pigskin football (laughs) state. Uh, Nobody talks about soccer. Um, Sports are everything, especially in my family. You know, my dad being a sports editor, 
he tried desperately to get me to be a sports star of some kind. And much to his dismay, you know, after trying flag football and soccer and basketball and tennis, you know, finally I found a sport that I was kind of good at, which was swimming, which he detested going to swim meets actually. So it was really ironic. (laughs) Um, So my uh, upbringing was a lot of um, school sports, activities, a busy Midwestern life full of American sports events. Did you grow up in a bilingual household? I did not grow up in a bilingual household. I love telling people the story now that I'm an interpreter about how my father, who was raised in a bilingual household and grew up speaking Spanish at home and to his elementary years, has now forgotten all of his Spanish to the point where he makes up words and it's become a joke in our family where my kids who are learning Spanish will ask Grandpa Jimbo, (laughs) we call him affectionately, how to say a word. And he will add an O onto the end of an English word. And we will all laugh because he honestly doesn't know, you know, like a snowflake is a a flake O, for instance. (laughs) And it's, it's just a riot. But at the same time, it's astounding Um, how individuals, you know, raised in the same household can either connect and want to learn the language and really grab onto it and carry on that legacy, or they're really not interested and their interests lie elsewhere. And learning the language really isn't that important to them. And for my dad, it wasn't that important for him, you know? However, when it came around to my generation, you know, I became very curious about learning Spanish, about traveling to Costa Rica, where my grandmother was from, learning about the culture there, experiencing the world. I think about the movie Moana and how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she comes from a family of voyagers. Mm -hmm. Um, but everybody wants her to stay on the island. And I felt a little of that growing up. My family on my mom's side is a rural agricultural family. Uh, They have a family dairy farm to this day, which if you know anything about uh, dairy farming, it requires a lot of hard work. You never leave the farm because you have to milk the cows twice a day. Mm. You know, you have to feed the animals, you have to clean the pens, and it's your life. And I remember loving my visits to the farm because my mom made it a priority for us to connect with family, even though the farm was maybe an hour and a half away. We would often visit, we would stay for a couple of weeks in the summer. And I loved being with the animals. You know, cows are very docile, (laughs) very (laughs) quiet, patient animals. And that's definitely part of my nature where I just like to be, you know, so I would go and I would, especially with the the pregnant cows, I love to go and see, oh, are they showing any signs of, you know, having their baby soon, of calving soon and being a part of that process of helping them be born But then when it came to the actual mm, farm work, like driving farm machinery, I soon found out that was not for me. And (laughs) uh, that would never be (laughs) something that I would be good at. 
uh, so, thankfully, uh, no, no major uh, expenses were lost there. <laughs> I'm curious, like in the story, uh, since we're talking about stories here, Disney stories, there's always something that basically catches the eye of the character, right? Whether that be a calling that they've always felt within, and then somehow they're, they're exposed to it and it sparks their curiosity to dig a little deeper since you weren't in a bilingual household and uh, Minnesota didn't seem like it was perhaps maybe where you grew up, multilingual community type of environment, where did your curiosity uh, spark to want to get a little bit more into developing or learning the Spanish language? Where did that begin? Do you recall? Yes, absolutely. I was invited to go to Colombia with some relatives, one of them being my namesake, Marisa. Her name was Maria Isabel, and they shortened it to Marisa. And my parents love the name, so that's why it is my name, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, she and her husband invited me to Cartagena, Colombia, when I was in 10th grade to attend a family reunion. And it opened my eyes to the world in many ways. It was the first time that I was completely surrounded by Spanish and mm. kind of had to fend for myself. And it made me want to learn more. And I look back at that experience and wish I could have had a real conversation at that point. I also was uh, witness to you know, abject poverty for really the first time in my life. So we would, uh, we visited a a beautiful monastery on a hill and I I recall um, children that were, you know, scantily clad, you know, holding up these sticks with um, half of a, a milk carton container on them, you know, trying to collect uh, coins or money from people down below. And it struck me so much that I, I wrote about it. I wrote an essay about it when I got home from my English class, and it just made the world um, seem much, you know, smaller in some ways. It's really easy in the U.S. to stay very isolated, mm. and especially if you grow up in a middle-class home, there are many things that it is easy to take for granted. I was a, a strange child in many ways because I remember walking into a grocery store and being overwhelmed by the amount of things around me, you know, just, um, it really took me off guard because I thought to myself, wow, how did all of these things get to one place? And how is it so easy for us to just grab something off of the shelf and pay for it and take it home and cook it and eat it? And so I was always curious about things like that. And, and there was always something in me that made me want to know, like, how do we get the things that we have and to want to be grateful for them? So when I saw children, you know, without anything, living in um, shacks, basically, uh, made out of tin, you know, which I've experienced on, on my grandparents' farm, and I know how cold it gets, at least mm. in Minnesota, I'm sure in Colombia, it gets chilly as well. Um it made me realize again how grateful I am to have had all of these opportunities. You know, I have had access to an education, I've had access to shelter, I've had access to 
three meals a day. I've had access to being able to uh, swim. You know, I talk to some of my coworkers um, who are Middle Eastern and they were never given the opportunity to swim because they had to expose their bodies to be able to do that. Mm. And, you know, that really struck me. I'd never thought of that as, as a privilege that I had, but I saw the longing in their eyes. You know, it was sad for them that they had never learned and that even as an adult, they still wanted to. Um, yeah. You have conversations with people from other parts of the world. You really see their humanity and you also see how your experience is just one experience, you know, mm-hmm. in an ocean of experiences mm-hmm. and how much, if you actually try, you can, you know, learn from other people. Yeah, absolutely. So you go to Colombia and you have this impactful experience. Were you already in Spanish class by then? Or was this your driver to say, I am coming back and taking Spanish classes? I started Spanish in sixth grade. That was my first quote unquote Spanish class. It was a very short, uh, I think like six week course or something like that. And and we sang songs. I still remember like Tengo Una Familia Grande, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's music and, and language learning is amazing. You know how those little ditties stick in your head. Yeah. Uh, and then in ninth grade, I started taking Spanish as well. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I I thought I wanted to be a pop star for a while because I love singing and I am brazen enough to perform in front of people. You know, I was in choir from a young age. I performed uh, Madonna songs for our entire class in fifth and sixth grade. And I have fond memories of rehearsing um, for those experiences with my dad. And, oh, what are we going to do during the interlude of this Madonna holiday song? I'm going to take out a beach towel and I'm going to lay it down and I'm going to, you know, pretend to be on the beach. And it was a whole act. Um, And I knew realistically, you know, singing as a career would be extremely hard. And I just let myself experience life, I think, as a kid. You know, I wasn't too worried about what am I going to be when I grow up? Mm. And I just took um, classes that were interesting to me. I love Spanish, you know, because of my heritage and I wanted to learn more all of the time. Uh, But I never really realized, hey, I want to do something with this for my career. Mm -hmm. I I was a, a teacher at heart. You know, I identified with a lot of my teachers. I was always a really good student. I wanted to get all of the points on all of the quizzes. And if I didn't, it was heartbreaking. I wasn't as great as math as I, I wished I would have been. And I remember a teacher telling me like, well, if you need more time on this long division test, then, you know, you're probably not ready for the next level of math. And it was devastating. I was like, how can I not be good at this subject? Oh my goodness. Um, And, but other people saw it in me, which is a a thread, I think, in my life. You know, how some people can just see things in you that you can't see sometimes. And, you know, my, my neighbors or acquaintances would say, oh, well, you'll do something with Spanish. And I'm like, okay. I, well, I don't know what that would be other than, other than teaching. Mm -hmm. So it got um, time to go to college and 
again, I didn't really have a plan. I just knew, hey, I want to take courses that are interesting, but I want to make the most of my ed- education. So I'm going to study hard. I'm going to take Spanish. I'm going to I'm going to take classes uh, regarding education and uh, philosophy and religion. And I'm just going to see what seems to make the most sense because I have a lot of interests. I'm a lifelong learner. And by the end of college, I was about to become a Spanish secondary education teacher. It was fall semester of my senior year and a beloved Spanish professor of mine uh, was teaching me a course which involved some volunteer service opportunities as part of using your Spanish because I had spent a semester abroad in Costa Rica, which was amazing although I had fallen in love before I went. So I was like heart sick, heart, what is it called? Love sick before I left. Darn that love. (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) Thankfully I married him. So it was worth it. Oh, okay. You know, it's probably why I'm in the U S instead of Costa Rica, but whatever, (laughs) it's a good place to be here in the frigid, uh, negative two degree weather in Minnesota. Right. I wouldn't know. And so there I am, I'm, you know, in my fall semester and there are two service opportunities for this class I'm taking. One is to work with um, adult English language learners. So ESL students in a nearby town, which would have made perfect sense for me because I was in the secondary education track. And the other was to be a volunteer interpreter at a free clinic in town. And something told me, I need to try interpreting. That sounds interesting. I don't know why, but I want to, but I'm worried about disappointing this professor of mine, you know, because he's been such a mentor and he's kind of already assigned me to this other track. And it was my husband, my now husband, right? Who I was lovesick over when I was studying abroad, (laughs) who encouraged me and said, Marisa, if you want to try this, just write an email. I'll sit here right next to you. We'll write it together. And then you send it to him and you just explain, Hey, I'd like to try this interpreting thing. And you know what? Sometimes the anticipation is worse than, than anything else. Um, so I wrote the email and it was not a big deal at all. I was able to do the interpreting and Maria, it was love at first sight. I can't explain it. Mm. I've had a lot of at first sights, you know, that's kind of how I, I fell for my, my now husband, this light bulb went off in Spanish class, even after, you know, my grandmother, who is this five foot tall brown lady has been speaking Spanish words to me. Right. But it's not until that moment in Spanish class that it's like, Hey, this is something that I'm going to, you know, actually use and, and get interested in and learn about. Um, and again, with the interpreting, I, I just, I knew I had to follow my passion. It was amazing to be able to speak messages that really made a difference in people's lives. And not only was it helping, you know, and I know your latest episode with Danielle is about, we don't facilitate, we don't just facilitate communication, which is true. However, at that moment in my life as a volunteer interpreter, it struck me the power of a person being able to communicate that message and how just being able to communicate allowed them access to this care that they needed. You know, they desperately needed. 
um, to be treated by a doctor. They were coming to a free clinic. They didn't have insurance and they had serious concerns and health issues. And these doctors were volunteering their time. I was volunteering my time with my um, colleagues as well, with my fellow students to help them communicate um, their needs at that point, because I was not at all a trained interpreter. And I just thought, I want to do this. I need to look into it. And Mireya, I'm a person that when I get an idea, I take little steps one after another. If I get an idea and I feel like this is something that I need to do, I can't ignore it. Because if I ignore it, I have this feeling that someday it's going to turn into a regret or, you know, I'm just not going to be able to be at peace until I know that I've tried. And I went to my career center uh, at Luther College. Shout out to Luther College, who's ever listening. And they were able to secure an internship for me the following J term. So a January term, it was a month long internship where I shadowed interpreters at a uh, medical center where I happen to now work. And it was, uh, I can't, it was instrumental in me being able to um, secure the job that I have now, you know, prepare me um, by just being able to observe those encounters, which actually um, is part of the demand control schema, ASL, one of their um, instructional techniques is just um, observing, right? An encounter before you actually interpret in it. And I took that opportunity to invest in medical uh, dictionaries, anatomy, you know, learn as much vocabulary as I could read in Spanish, have conversations in Spanish, really immerse myself as much as I could um, in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have is a couple difficult of, to do, Mireya. I, yeah. I, I, I can only imagine, particularly with a little bit of the background that you gave us um, it, with the community or the type of the community that you grew up in. I have a couple of follow-up questions with the story that you just shared with us, uh, Marissa, which the first one being... Uh, Typically, when we are in a, a, a situation such as like the assignment you that you were assigned to, you're out there volunteering. Sometimes there is an experience that we have that really kind of turns things for us. Was there a story in this experience of yours in volunteering that really struck a chord for you? And that you said, you know, this touches my heart and I definitely want to pursue this further. I think it was a collection of experiences. Uh, for that volunteering experience, there was a, a theme amongst the people coming in to be seen. They were disenfranchised people who lacked the resources and the knowledge to be able to receive the care, medical care. Um, that so many people in the U.S. are accustomed to. And it was hearing those similar stories repeatedly and my inclination towards uh, advocating for social justice in general that made me realize I can be good at this. You know, I can apply myself as a student to learn the language, to get to the point where I can really make a difference by communicating these messages accurately. I want to do this as a profession. 
and really use that to be able to make a difference in people's lives. So in that particular experience, I can't think of one, you know, my throughout my 15 years of medical interpreting, I've interpreted in over, you know, 20,000 encounters in a medical setting. And there are encounters that definitely are more salient than others. Um, But I would say they have come after that volunteer interpreting experience, that that was the catalyst for my passion, for my desire to to pursue the career. Um, But as far as those patients whose faces I see, you know, as I prepare for this interview, thinking about the patients who've touched my life just by allowing me to be there um, and and interpret for them. Um, they're the patients that I have worked with over the years as a staff uh, medical interpreter. Thank you, Marissa. I also have another question regarding uh, the story you just shared. It had to do with you going back to the career center. And I often think about the student that is looking into potentially getting into this field, into this career, and not knowing really where to go for more information, right? Or how to even begin in the profession. You had the clarity um, to go back to the career center and say, hey, I'm interested in this. What was that conversation like? What did you ask specifically for them to be able to ensure, you know, an internship in a community that doesn't sound like there was programs for training interpreters and of that sort? I mean, correct me, please, if I'm wrong. But what is that like? How did you take that initiative so that those that are listening and saying, hey, maybe I could potentially go back to my career center and inquire the same thing? Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I'm at the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com. CISinterpreters.com. That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Seraphim Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. At the time that I realized I wanted to be an interpreter, I was clueless as to where to start. I thought, where do I go? And I couldn't think of anywhere else but a career center that was specifically designed to help students interested in pursuing a profession um, get opportunities. And I think there was a a stroke of uh, luck (laughs) in my story because the internship that I was able to get through my career center uh, has not really been offered to students since then. Uh, There has been, you know, red tape involved. It really has been dependent on the administrator or uh, person in in management of the department that I'm in to uh, authorize internships of that kind. And there have maybe been a couple students since then who have come for an internship. But recently, I would say in the last eight years or so, there haven't been any, 
which is one of the reasons that I am so glad to be able to share this story with you. Because if you are a native English speaker who wants to become bilingual, there are so many more opportunities. You know, there are resources online where you can get a, a tutor, right, to speak with you in another language. Um, as you know, Mireya, there are interpreter training courses, you know, 40 hour training courses available for people. At the time that I wanted to become an interpreter, I had no idea what, right. what you did. And, you know, honestly, during my interview, I wasn't even really asked, you know, if I had taken a course like that. The most important thing was to be able to pass a language proficiency test right. and demonstrate your ability to be a uh, competent worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and then, uh, unfortunately, just learn a lot on the job. So I was blessed with an amazing team who I could go to with questions. Mm. I remember carrying, I had no shame, Maria. You know, for me, the most important thing was to learn and to do the best job that I could. And I carried a medical dictionary, Spanish <laughs> to English too. around with me. I kid you not, because you know, I'm aging myself a little bit here, but it wasn't the age of look something up on your smartphone. You know, we were still using the print materials at that time mm-hmm. and I needed to have it um, on hand. We weren't uh, allowed to carry our phone. So, so even if I wanted to use a, you know, a digital device, the, the hospital did not allow employees to carry around their phones. And so I walked around with my English to Spanish medical, Holly Mickelson. What was yours? Yes. Oh my goodness. It, ugh, <laughs> now you are making me um, think about what the name is. I can find it for you. Uh, I did use the interpreters RX though by yeah. Holly Mickelson, um, <laughs> specifically when I was preparing for my certification exams, but the one that I had was, it had a purple cover. It was, it was beautiful actually. <laughs> and, I, and I wrote all over it and, um, I found it very helpful. So, well, that leads me to the, actually the next question, Marissa, what has to do with, uh, you know, it sounded like you did a lot of the, of the medical training, um, uh, in terms of terminology and things of that sort solo, you started looking for the resources that you could tap into on your own to feel prepared to walk into this type of environment. At what point did you pursue formal training? Mm-hmm. I pursued it uh, as soon as I knew (laughs) where to go. There was a program offered through the University of Minnesota nearby, which was offering a certificate program. And I signed up for it. I think I I knew of it and signed up for it one or two years after I started interpreting. And it wasn't a 40-hour training program, but it taught a lot of the same principles. It was just in a semester format. So, okay introduction to interpreting, um, and then consecutive interpreting, et cetera. And I was so grateful to have that opportunity nearby. And then I also pursued, um, well, obviously I had my education in Spanish, my bachelor's degree, uh, which prepared me well in many ways for a lot of the, um, general terms and also being able to experience the culture because as part of my major, you had to spend a semester abroad and I wanted to spend a semester abroad anyway, uh, which I don't think you can really learn a language without 
an immersion experience. Immersion. Mm. Mm -hmm. I really don't. You know, when you speak another language, it changes even your way of thinking. When you get to a certain point of really being fluent in that language, it changes the lens through which you view the world, depending on the the language. Like if I read a book in Spanish and I read that same book in English, I have two completely different experiences mm-hmm. or oh, absolutely. absolutely, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I mean, would... in language and culture are interconnected. I don't think you can separate the two. Otherwise, you know, uh, in silo, the experiences are not as rich. You don't understand the full embodiment of a word unless you are directly uh, immersed in the experience of where that word was born, I believe. So I can absolutely agree with you that it's it's not the same. Learning a language, the structure, the skeleton, perhaps in the school setting, but once you are in the environment where the language was born, where the people feel what they speak, I mean, it, it can only bring you richer experiences through that, right? Exactly. And also depending on the country that you come from, what I quickly found out is I asked a lot of questions, you know, and so whenever a term came up, I would find a a translation for it. But then I wanted to ask my colleagues who were from different countries, what do you think about this term? And I would get several different answers, Mireya. And it would frustrate me at times because I would want to, you know, my A type thinking, my linear type thinking, I'd be like, I want one answer. You know, I want there to be one correct word for this, but Spanish at least, and I believe Arabic and other languages don't work that way. You know, it's really regional. So the way you say, you know, banana in (laughs) Mexico is different from the way you say banana in Puerto Rico at times. And, uh, and it just, you, you need to, expand your vocabulary. But then I think it also opens up a conversation of, um, you know, is there a more internationally accepted and correct Spanish, which can be a a touchy subject uh, with people because they have strong opinions about it. And I know in our community right now, um, you know, is it the Real Academia Española um, or a, you know, the Mele or what you know, which um, authority are you going to um, to really say, hey, no, this is the correct word to be used all of the time. Uh, and I think as as trainers of interpreters too, we need to be cognizant of that, and it it instills in us uh, responsibility to educate ourselves. You know, first of all not only on um, being the best interpreters we can be as far as how do I most correctly relay this message, but also how do I have conversations with students to help them be the best interpreter they can be, to help serve their patients in the best way. And uh, I've had the experience to become a simulation center instructor. If you've ever worked in a simulation center, uh, you know that it's designed for medical professionals who are learning how to handle simulated experiences on the job. This is a place where they teach um, emergency medicine physicians, for instance, how to deal with a critical patient coming in. 
Uh, they will have paid actors, which they call standardized patients, playing a role, or they will have mannequins if you're at a you know top-level simulation center that can simulate breathing, heart rate. They have the same texture of skin, you know, or very similar to it. You can put an IV in the mannequin. The eyelids will move open and close. You can be behind wow. a control center and you can talk through the mannequin. So it's really designed to simulate that emergency type experience. And you, you run scenarios. So that would be an emergency medicine experience. There are also other rooms where you can have a family medicine consult, so a conversation. And our staff recently did an experience with the simulation center. It was the first time doing it and practiced, you know, interpreting in front of one another, which if you've ever interpreted in front of a colleague, I find it to be one of the most nerve wracking and intimidating experiences. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, because you get so self-conscious. And, well, right. I shouldn't say you, but I find that it's easier for me to become self-conscious and, and question my choices because I find myself thinking, overthinking right. <laughs> the decisions I'm making, whereas I wouldn't do that in a regular encounter. Where I'm going with this is in simulation, at the end of the experience, the purpose during the debrief is to try to get the learner to reflect on what happened, to reflect on the choices they made. You know, it, it, for example, if you're working with an interpreting student, I noticed that you used um, such and such word for this term. Could you explain, you know, your choice to me? Why did you choose to use that word? You know, and let them give you their reasoning, right? Um, and have a conversation about it, you know? So instead of just assuming, you know, why a person is making a choice, um, you let them give their reasoning and then you say, oh, I can see where you're coming from, right? And if they need to be, you know, redirected or given some constructive criticism, that's the time to kind of have that conversation. Uh, but first, you know, you get them thinking about why did they make that decision? Because as interpreters, we're making decisions all of the time. Mm. So being able to reflect on why we make those decisions is really important. And as an educator, it's important to understand and be understanding of why people make those decisions. And whenever given the chance, instead of breaking someone down, trying to find a way to lift them up as a language professional, trying to find a way to motivate them to act in a more ethical manner right? Um, I work with a lot of experienced interpreters, so I didn't see a lot of uh, novice tendencies, but especially when working with novice interpreters, I think it's important to be kind. <laughs> First and foremost. Kind. Uh, and I understand that we need to hold ourselves to a high standard, but I also understand that this job takes grit and determination and you have to have tough skin to survive in it. <laughs> and it's important to mix those messages with encouraging and empowering messages of, yes, you may be in a, in a situation where a patient is coming in who has just had a limb 
uh, amputated by a machine from a factory and you are going to have to keep it together and interpret all of those messages. And at the same time, uh, be able to say, and you're going to do the best you can, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's not going to be perfect, but you're going to get better all of the time and encourage them to do that. Um, I wish, I wish, you know, I had had someone there for me, uh, telling me (laughs) these things versus uh, some colleagues that I ran into who basically were like, "Mm, you didn't do this, 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 this. So you're not going to make it. Ah, yes. The diva interpreters, as they've been tagged, perhaps unbeknownst to them, I don't know. You went from a girl mispronouncing her name to the interpreter carrying around her glossary around the hospital when she first started to eventually becoming certified and now training other interpreters in a way in which you perhaps would have wished to have had that support and encouragement when you first started. Let's talk a bit about this part of your journey. What led you towards the certification, first and foremost? And then how did you go about finding the right training program for in-house staff? Great question, Mireya. When I know that there is another level to be achieved, I want to achieve that level. So as soon as I knew that there was an interpreting program nearby, I signed up for it. As soon as I became aware that there was a national certification coming out, I signed up to be part of the pilot. And I studied with a group of interpreters and we prepared and, you know, we wanted to be certified. We wanted to be able to say that because we were professionals. Um, When I think about being the girl who was mispronouncing her name to now being able to have a conversation with somebody in Spanish, and then not only that, but being able to train other colleagues as to how to have conversations in other languages, I... I'm amazed, you know, it's really uh, mind blowing to think that I've come this far. And I, you know, I look to my um, grandmother as a source of inspiration. Actually, she, uh, you know, in Spanish, we say abuelita for grandma. And it it was a transformation because I grew up with her being grandma as a younger uh, girl. And then as I progressed in my Spanish, she became abuelita and she's just always abuelita to me now. She was an amazing person. She lived to be 103 years old. She was 72 years old when I was born. And I was so grateful to have known her for that long. I remember my mom saying when we would visit her in Florida, well, this might be the last year, you know, grandma's getting older. So, you know, let's make the most of it. And I literally felt like every time I saw her, like, oh, this is the last time I'm ever going to see her to... uh, having, you know, that uh, 30 plus years with her was just amazing for her. Well, it does like, I'm going nowhere. (laughs) That's right. I mean, she was playing tennis into her nineties. She never lost her Spanish. When we would visit Costa Rica together, uh, she would talk in Spanish as if she'd never left. It was amazing. You know, her English was impeccable as well. She served as a, in the Women's Army Corps in World War II. Wow. Um, yeah. Censoring the mail going, you know, back and forth that was written in Spanish to make sure that it didn't have any confidential information going home, things like that. Uh, she had her own radio show in New York. 
she was insistent on marrying a Latino man. This was something very important to her. So she signed up to go to a um, tennis club that was for um, Latinos. And uh, she met my grandfather there. And she said, I want to marry this man, right? I'm not sure he was so convinced at the time, but uh, she was like, no, this is, this is the man that I'm going to marry. And they, uh, he ended up going to war in world war two and they weren't married at that time. And she was like, no, I'm going to sign up too. And we're going to go together. And they ended up getting married, um, while they were in uniform. Wow. (laughs) Yes. And uh, making a life together in New York. She didn't have kids until she was in her 40s um, due to some infertility issues that they were having. Um, But she was able to have a son and a daughter and just touch so many lives because she carried on our family's uh, history. I I have a book. It's 100 pages long of the story of our family dating back to the time of the Inquisition and the 1500s and relaying the story of all of the family members and their journeys to Curacao and then later on to Colombia and to Jamaica and, you know, to where my, how my grandmother ended up in Costa Rica. And there's a story that I wrote about my grandmother, my abuelita in there. And, uh, we have a family grave in Cartago still. My grandmother and I traveled to Costa Rica three times, I think. And this last time we went together, but she had passed away. I was bringing her ashes back home to be buried at the family grave. And it was a beautiful experience because our close friends who inherited my um, great-grandfather's business um, you know, they bought it from from him. Um, Los Navarros, the Navarros were there, and we paid tribute to her and her life. And it was just a beautiful celebration of the person that she was. And also, uh, we were able to pay tribute to my um, namesake, Marisa's brother, who had um, died at that time recently. And uh, his name was David, which also happened to be my great grandfather's name. <laughs> And we just, uh, we made the journey, right? We made the journey there to be together, to lay these people to rest in the place that they wanted to be, you know, after they had passed on. And so I come from a line, (laughs) this is what I think. I come from a line of people who didn't let obstacles deter them, right? Everyone faces challenges, and it's in those moments when you decide how you want to react, what way you're going to approach that situation and how you're going to proceed. Um, so how did I become an interpreter trainer? That's what we were talking about is this idea of you know capitalizing on um, opportunities or you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know, in the department that I'm in, you know, we have we serve at a large volume of patients. We're so busy, you know, it's hard to sometimes connect and really build that foundation for um, quality or best practices. 
And I had been part of, a, of several initiatives over the years, whenever, you know, an opportunity came up, or sometimes I would initiate them to try to come together and get these groups going and have these conversations about how can we best serve our patients? You know, interpreting 101 basics, <laughs> a class that I actually recently created online for our staff. <laughs> um, and we had a new manager come in, uh, I don't know, maybe four years ago, who hired in a cross-cultural communications licensed trainer to give all of us a 40-hour training. So staff that had been there for 30 years, imagine, they're going through a 40-hour training. It, it brought up a lot of uh, emotions, let's just say. I'm sure it did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And after that uh, process was done, because we're kind of going through a cultural shift, they looked for people in our office who were interested in becoming trainers and had to apply to become one. And I said, of course, yes, absolutely. I'm going to apply for this opportunity. And a colleague and I were selected and we went to Maryland and we met the infamous Marjorie Bancroft, uh, who is amazing. And I amazing. just love the program that she has built. And, you know, Maria, it reminds me of a story that you told of being at that training and how just that one line or that one comment from someone really sparked something in you um, about taking the stage. What was the comment again, Mireya? Oh my gosh, you said it and I got chills again. Yes, that that uh, it it's an amazing program. I'll just give a little bit of background and the you know they they actually have you go up and teach right what you just learned right. So so I mean we're training to be trainers, and they put us up on stage and. Um, Oh my gosh, I, me and the stage is just, you know, it's almost the same as me and getting on a plane and, uh, the feedback that was given back after that was, um, take the stage more often. They put it down in a little piece of paper, right? Like they write it down and they give it to you. And so you're reading all this constructive criticism or, you know, if they're, um, uh, positive notes that somebody wants to share something you know, very specific that stood out and they'll write it down and give that to you at the end of your, uh, of your presentation. And yeah, it was a take the stage more often that I still have it actually in my binder because it's, it's notes like that, you know, feedback like that, that really, like you mentioned earlier, Marisa, that you don't know you have within you. It's, it takes somebody else, um, you know, to mention it. So yeah, I didn't mean to take over the story here, but that was definitely a, a great experience with cross-cultural communications. Well, I relate to that experience because my experience with them was similar. I was sitting with this group of interpreters and we were supposed to practice uh, an interpreting scenario together and I was going to be the interpreter and I was so nervous. Um, as I said earlier, it can be intimidating to interpret for colleagues Thankfully, it was a medical scenario. And, uh, you know, we got done with the scenario and I looked up and they were just silent and they were looking at me with their eyes, you know, eyes wide, staring at me, kind of maybe mouth slightly ajar. And I thought, what's happening right now? You know, that was my inner dialogue. And um, one of my, 
you know, people, one of the students in the cohort said, that was amazing. (laughs) Here I am terrified that, you know, I've just done something, um, you know, subpar or, and, and, and here these people are, and they're just blown away, you know, by my ability to interpret. And it was such an empowering experience to hear that from other, not only other interpreters, but other interpreters who had invested in traveling to Maryland to become trainers mm-hmm. and teach other interpreters. You know, it just made that self-doubt, yeah. <laughs> you know, if not disappear, uh, take a, a significant backseat to any other, um, you know, emotions that I was having at the time and instilled in me this belief, like, I do have what it it takes, you know, to be a leader and to um, share knowledge. You know, I have something to offer here and I shouldn't take that for granted. Um, So I I came back from that experience with a lot of ideas and empowered uh, and yes, empowered. And I just wanted to uh, make a difference. So my high school counselor said, uh, you know, cause I, here I am in the career center again. I went to my high school counselor being like, what should I, you know, what should I do? I don't really know. And he's like, well, you're one of those people who wants to make a difference. And I said, oh, I guess, yes, I, I am one of those people, uh, you know, no matter what I do, that's just in my nature, I'm going to be making a difference. And I'm so glad that it's in interpreting. Um, so I became a licensed trainer and I just loved teaching again. I just thought, oh my gosh, I missed this. You know, I love interpreting, but you know, that teacher in me has never gone away. I love being able to see something in a student and nurture that and cultivate it. And like others have done for me, you know, build up that confidence, have them build up that confidence in themselves or find that inner strength or that inner power um, to you know, be the best person, not only be the best interpreter, but also just be the best person that they can be, you know, during the pandemic, it's been a a life-changing experience for everyone (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I really used that opportunity to focus on my mental health and to connect, um, with others because it was a large time of, of disconnect. Mm -hmm. I'm an extremely social person. You know, I am not a homemaker. I am not made to stay at home and cook and (laughs) clean and take care of children all day. That is just not my gift. I love my kids dearly. I I love making a good meal from time to time, but I tell you my mental health (laughs) takes a plunge. If I don't get to leave my house and interact with adults and have stimulating conversations. And I decided to start um, seeing a therapist. You know, um, I could tell that I was getting a little depressed and more anxious than usual. And I, I realized that I had a, a stigma, you know, about um, getting help for psychological issues because I was hesitant to do it. Uh, and having and taking and making that decision to see someone, you know, to consult with a trained therapist, a trained psychologist, 
on a regular basis has improved my well-being, has improved my, you know, self-esteem, has improved my, you know, quality of life. I can't, uh, you know, sing the praises of this decision enough and has in turn allowed me to, you know, weather this pandemic storm, I think a lot better than um, and the average person has. One of my focuses as an interpreter trainer thus is on self-care and the importance of that holistic approach to, yes, interpreting fundamentals um, of maintaining professional boundaries, maintaining role boundaries, being accurate and complete with transmitting messages, keeping information confidential. These are essential to being a good interpreter. And we should all strive to do that and be the best interpreters that we can be. At the same time, Mireya, no matter who you are, what your profession, life is short. And we don't know how long we are going to have on this planet. I'm a strong believer in every day seeing it as a another gift. And uh, I think working in the medical center has helped. You know, I, I can never take my health for granted because I work with people who are seriously ill, people who can't speak or people who can't walk or people whose children are sick. And it just makes you realize, uh, put life in perspective. It makes you put life in a, in a perspective, you know, that you wouldn't have if you don't experience that on a regular basis. Mm. So I like to encourage interpreters as well to open up about their own life and their own struggles and just find ways to navigate the challenges that life throws at us. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, ultimately, we're not going to be able to provide um, top level service to our patients. Yeah, I think it's a. It's the same concept as, you know, when we're about to take that flight and the flight attendants come out and and say something that potentially many of us as parents think of it as such an awful thing. But they say, what do they say when those oxygen masks drops? Who's the first one that should be getting that oxygen? Because if you're not okay, how are you going to take care of your kids or whomever is there that you're taking care of? So um, taking care of yourself first is of utmost important importance. And I appreciate the fact that you shared that here on this platform, Marisa. And, and I'm proud, colleague to colleague, that you took that step, such an important step, uh, in spite of that stigma that I don't know where that comes from, potentially maybe society or, or our families, that, that therapy is something for the loquitos, right? The crazies. Um, when, when in fact, that's not the case, if you don't seek out, you know, proper treatment, maybe you will end up uh, a loquito or crazy, <laughs> right? Um, because, because you're trying to do everything yourself, including, the mental uh, health aspect when there's trained professionals uh, that could support you in that sense. Marisa, we're getting ready to wrap up such an important conversation, but there are a couple of things that I still would like to ask. Uh, and so one of those being what new or future project are you planning on working on, whether that be for yourself 
or uh, for the hospital and the staff that you're working with? Well, Maria, I always have a project in mind. Uh, as far as the staff I'm working with, I w- I'm planning on offering an LGBTQ uh, webinar, uh, collaborating with some staff um, in our medical center to do that. Uh, it's a topic that is much needed just to open up that conversation, start uh, again, <laughs> being aware of any stigmas that may exist around that topic. And then uh, trying to break down some of those barriers, you know, that we as interpreters might bring to those encounters unknowingly. Um, Also, I have launched a company, so I'm a a full-time working mom. (laughs) I have three very active young children. My husband is getting his master's. And what do I do? Well, I decided to start my own company. Of course. (laughs) Of course I did. (laughs) But I tell you, it was another one of those aha moments where a colleague who was new to our staff was shadowing me. I was at a pediatric appointment, what I would consider pretty run of the mill. You know, the child had a a minor ailment and, you know, the conversation was pretty standard. And I uh, walked out of the room. I was interpreting and, and the newer interpreter was observing me. And again, kind of this look of kind of awe in his face. And he said, wow, he's like, I haven't seen anything like that. (laughs) He said, do you have a blog or like a podcast or have you written any books? And I kind of looked at him and I said, no, I'm like, why, why would I have any of what do you, who do you think you're talking to here? You know? And, uh, you know, he just really, he said, you know, you, you learned this language. It was a second language to you. You're familiar with the culture from the U S you know, you're familiar with, um, Hispanic culture. You've got a lot of insight and, you know, just the emotion that you're able to portray in, in the appointments. It's not something that I've experienced, uh, Rachel Herring did a seminar on that actually, or a research project about how being able to uh, match that tone or emotion in an interpreting setting is um, comes last, right? Because you really have to be fluent and, and master all of the other nuances of the art to then be able to add in the pauses and the tone and really get that extra meaning across. Uh, and so that was a very big compliment to me. And ever since that colleague said that, I thought, you know, wow, this person who barely knows me, you know, he's shadowed me and like one appointment is saying this to me. I'm missing something here. You know, I'm not seeing um, the enough value in myself or the gifts that I have to offer. And just like that that little itch that started with the volunteer interpreting, you know, I had that feeling I need to pursue this. You know, I'm not going to be at peace until I give this a real try. And I, and I think about, you know, what he said and what does that mean? And, you know, what do I really want to do as a result? And from that, little by little, I started taking steps to create a business and offer, you know, trainings, which I have tried to kind of get going in my, in my own office. Um, 
but I thought, why, why wouldn't I do it on my own as well? I, I think that's uh, really special. And I can, I've also taken an interest in translating and translating has helped me to become a better interpreter. My respect to translators, you know, oh, a lot yeah. of people think uh, interpreting and translating is the same thing. And, you know, I, I have to explain it is not. Not at all. <laughs> translating is like research <laughs> and uh, perfecting and, you know, not that we don't try to be as uh, accurate as we can when interpreting, but when you have something written, it's, it's there forever. Oh yeah. Totally <laughs> agree. So yeah, I have. All right. So what am I working on? Um, as an educator, I try to bring my cultural capital to any opportunity. And one of the experiences that I've had in my life is um, giving birth to a stillborn child. Okay. Mm which a lot of people find uncomfortable to talk about. It's uh, not something talked about in society. Um, it's something that is kept secret in a lot of families. And after I experienced that, I, I had people coming out of the woodwork, as we say in English, who I knew through a friend of a friend or a family member that would write to me, uh, send me a card because they had been through a similar experience. And they wanted to show that solidarity. And that experience has changed my life in many ways. Uh, first and foremost, I connected with other women because there wasn't a support group for infant and pregnancy loss in our area. So the four of us got together and we created a group, uh, which is still running today. And I'm very proud of the fact that that is available for um, not only women, but couples or anyone experiencing a loss um, around pregnancy. And one of my first projects as a businesswoman is going to be to educate people about this topic, which makes people uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of people don't have that extra added knowledge. So I want to not only bring information, but I want to bring stories to people. I want them to be able to really connect with what this experience is like for a person going through it. So I'm working on a series right now centered around infant and pregnancy loss for specifically for interpreters. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be doing some translations, some medical translations, which I'm excited about. And mainly, Mireya, I just hope that any interpreter or any anyone interested in becoming an interpreter or translator, what I would say to them from my story is you can do it. You know, you just have to believe in yourself and you have to take the first step, like with anything in life. If you look at the end goal and how far you have to go, it seems daunting. But if you just take one step after another, after another, eventually you can reach that goal, right? So um, I would really encourage you. We need you out there. We need you in the field to look into it, follow your heart. If you think it's the right path for you, you know, I have no regrets. My patients still bring me so much joy every day. Uh, I can't, I can't tell you how rewarding it is when a patient or a family that I've interpreted for, for over a decade 
says to me, you know, after an appointment, we just love it when you interpret for us. You know, we have always appreciated you and your service. It makes it all worth it, Mireya. You know, um, even in tragic situations, right? Like I had a a child whose family I worked with closely, and the child ended up passing away. And when they passed away, um, I wasn't there. I wasn't on call at the hospital at that time. But just imagine, they told the other interpreter who was there. Tell Marisa, thank you for helping us. You know, can you imagine? I can't. Personally, I have, you know, I've lost a child of my own and I can't imagine having the presence of mind in that moment to tell, you know, a a member of the hospital, please tell so-and-so, thank you so much, you know, for all that they did for us. So all the interpreters out there in the medical setting, you are making a difference, (laughs) especially freelancers. You don't get that continuity of care with your patients, but you never know, you know, when that one encounter, when that one moment could be pivotal or transformative in somebody's life. So, you know, don't lose hope. (laughs) Beautifully said, Marisa. Thank you for sharing that story. That's just so inspiring, I think. And, and it actually was the last question that I had with regards to uh, recommendations for the new generation of interpreters that are coming out. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that. To close, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? You can connect with me on LinkedIn at Marisa Rueda Will, C-H-I, or as Tika Trainer on Twitter and Instagram. It has been a delightful conversation, and I am so happy that we touched on so many important topics uh, near and dear to your heart, and I'm sure that will also connect with other interpreters or language professionals listening to your episode. So Marisa, thank you so much for being a part of the Brand the Interpreter community, and I cannot wait to share your story. Thank you. Thank you, Mireya. It has been a pleasure to be able to talk to you. And I am looking forward to continuing to listen to your episodes. They have been inspiring in my career, and I'm sure they have in um, careers of many other people. Thank you, Marisa. Take care. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.